take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. So as we, uh, as we come to this place in Genesis, I was saying to someone this past week, it's, uh, it's kind of all downhill from here. <laughs> we turn a corner from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, and uh, man, it's, it's pretty dark what happens in this chapter and uh, in the next couple chapters. Um, you know, as we've been in Genesis, we've looked at how uh, Adam and Eve, the first two humans, God gave them paradise, gave them the benefit of knowing him, of being in his presence, of his blessings in this garden that they were in. They, they knew what human flourishing was, to, to know God and to follow God and to live according to his word. Uh, they had paradise. They had it all, and they gave it up. They gave it up as they let the serpent deceive them into disobeying God's word, taking matters into their own hands, taking control of their own life. They abandoned God, they rejected his word, and as a result, uh, consequences came for their sin. Of course, there was grace in the midst of those consequences. God was gracious to let the human race continue, as we saw last week. He was gracious to, um, to clothe Adam and Eve in their shame. He was gracious to, uh, to not let them live forever in their sinful state. There was tons of grace, but there was also consequences, marital strife. Difficulty in work, uh, a conflict between good and evil, uh, all over and over. And there's all these different consequences. They're expelled from the garden. And in the midst of that, of those consequences, and in the midst of the grace that God gives them in that moment, there's this promise in Genesis 3, 15, where God promises the serpent to put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So in the midst of this dark time that they're entering into as the human race, there's still this hope that one day, this battle between good and evil, this tension that's going to exist between these two sides, this line of the, the, off, the offspring of the woman, this good line, and then there's this offspring of the serpent, and this, this influence over on this side, there's going to be this conflict. But one day, there would be an offspring of the woman who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would bring the conflict to an end, who would be victorious over evil. The grace that God has given, the conflict that has been promised, and the offspring that is being expected, they all serve as a backdrop of our text today. So with that backdrop, let's read Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. 
But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. These two sons of Adam and Eve. Since this story, since these this events of this chapter first took place, all throughout scripture, throughout history, these two, Cain and Abel, have served as examples of a choice that we all have. They've served as a good example and a bad example. We have a choice. Are we going to follow the example of Abel, the righteous? Are we going to follow the example of Cain, who is unrighteous? Throughout Scripture, we see uh, Cain and Abel as, uh, used as, the, as these examples. They're sort of prototypes of what it looks like to be righteous, what it looks like to approach God, what it looks like to be innocent, on the one hand, with Abel, and then on the other hand, what it looks like to reject God, what it looks like to be evil. Throughout Scripture, there's these examples, and, and we have the choice before us today. Are we going to look like Abel or are we going to look like Cain? But what we're going to see in our passage, for both Cain and Abel and for us, the question is answered first and foremost in our heart. What we're going to see in our passage as we walk through it is that we have here two hearts, two different heart attitudes toward God, two different heart attitudes toward people. And so the choice before us is a choice not just about attitudes or actions, but fundamentally, it's a choice about our heart. Where are we going to uh, direct our heart? So there are two different hearts that lead to two very different results, but ultimately, both of these hearts have one need, and it's a need that we all have 
as well. So as we look at this passage, uh, I want us to look at it in three scenes. First, an offering from a heart of faith. Second, a murder from a heart of anger. And third, a response from the God of mercy. An offering from a heart of faith, a murder from a heart of anger, and a response from the God of mercy. So first, an offering from a heart of faith. So you notice there's kind of a little bit of a a sense of hope at the beginning of this passage as this chapter starts. Eve has a son, Cain, and she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And she's right to honor God for this. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. He blessed them to be fruitful and multiply. And so this is absolutely God's doing that she has a son. And not only is this God's grace that he's let the human race continue even after the fall of man. Remember also, Eve is waiting for an offspring. God had promised an offspring. He didn't promise when. And so she's waiting for this offspring. And so she gets excited when she bears her first son, Cain, a man with the help of the Lord. Of course, she bears another son too. And uh, I, I can't remember, there's a, there a show, I um, can't remember what it was, there's a dialogue between these two characters, and one said, uh, do, you know what, uh, do you know what causes sibling rivalry? And he's like, having more than one kid. And uh, the reality is, it doesn't take much more than just having two kids to have sibling rivalry. Uh, the fact that that it just is the state of things, that's what, that will inevitably lead to conflict. And so as she bears another uh, brother Abel, all of a sudden we have the conflict of this scene. We have the drama unfold, and the drama specifically begins with a scene of worship. So Cain and Abel, we're told, both have uh, different jobs. Abel is a keeper of the flock. Cain is a keeper or a worker of the ground. And so this scene of worship begins, and what happens is both of them bring an offering Uh, that fits the job that they have. Cain, he's a worker of the ground. He brings an offering from the ground. Abel, he's a worker of the sheep, so he brings an offering of the flock. They both bring their offerings to the Lord, but God accepts one, and he rejects the other. He He accepts Abel's offering, and he rejects Cain's offering. So why? Why does God accept Abel's offering? Well, scholars have disagreed and come up with a lot of different explanations. Uh, Some bring in all sorts of ideas that are not anywhere in the text, bringing in all these different explanations for why Abel's was a better offering than Cain's. Um, Some think that there's just no difference at all between the two offerings uh, externally. But the more I look at the text itself, the more I think we can see that there is something in the text that indicates to us that there was an external difference, physical difference between these two offerings. So look with me at uh, verse 4. Well, let's back up to verse 3. So we have Cain's offering. Listen to how Moses describes Cain's offering. It's an offering of the fruit of the ground. So he describes it, and it's simple. He doesn't say anything bad about it. But it's, it's just simple. Offering of the fruit of the ground. 
But then listen to how he describes Abel's offering in verse 4. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Moses goes out of his way to describe Abel as bringing the best that he had to offer. The firstborn, meaning he was offering something before he could guarantee that he would be able to have any for himself. The fat portions, meaning the best part of the animal. The part that he would want to keep for himself if he had a choice. He gives the best to God. So in the text, I think that it's, it's clear that Moses is intentionally trying to say that Abel's offering uh, had, there was a quality to his offering. But we need to recognize that Abel's offering was not accepted because it was better externally. I think it was better externally, but that's not why it was accepted. Look again at what he says here in verse 4. At the end of verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And then in verse 5, But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. The Lord was accepting the offering not simply because of what the offering was or wasn't. He was looking at the man. He was looking at Abel and his offering. You can't separate the two of them. Likewise, he was looking at Cain and his offering. The offering of Abel was accepted because of the heart that was offering it. We can see this further in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4. Nope, Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> 11, verse 4. So Abel's offering was accepted because of his heart, not accepted because of or based on the external nature of the offering. Look at what the author of Hebrews says about Abel in chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's offering was accepted because he was offering it from a heart of faith. His offering was accepted not because the offering was good, but because Abel was trusting in a good God. He was trusting God. And we can see this even as we look at the way that Moses is describing the offering of Abel. When he says he offers the firstborn, the reason why he was offering the firstborn externally, that is a demonstration of a heart of faith, a Faith that trusts that I can offer God the first and trust him to provide another. When we see the, the fat portion, the best, the choicest part of the animal, that's a heart of faith that says, I am trusting that God is worth this. I'm trusting that God can do more with this than I can do with it. It's the external difference in Abel's offering was a demonstration of his heart 
of faith. And it was accepted because of his heart of faith. This is something that we see throughout Scripture, that God is more concerned about the heart that offers than he is about the offering itself. In Psalm 51, in verses 16 and 17, David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Abel's offering was accepted first and foremost because of the heart with which he offered it. It was a heart of faith, a heart that trusted God, a heart that was humble before God. Now, again, Abel's offering was better externally. It wasn't accepted because of that, but it was better externally. The reason why it was better externally was because of his heart of faith. It wasn't because he just worked really hard to get a better offering and then God accepted it. No, the good offering, the the first fruits, the, the choicest portion, the reason why it was better was because of his heart of faith. And uh, let me give you an example of, of that kind of principle uh, from, from a kind of offering of worship that we would offer here in our gathered worship. So let's consider uh, that you, uh, let's imagine that you're here and uh, we're, we're singing as part of our worship and you see someone in worship who is singing passionately and you're like, man, I wish I, I wish I was, I could sing as passionately as that person. And so you start taking notes. You're like, okay, you take notes on, you know, okay, the volume at which they're singing, the position of their head, the, the position, you know, the gestures with their hands, um, and you, you know, and you go home and you practice. You practice, so like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to imitate this person's singing so I can sing just as passionately as they do. So then you come in here, you've practiced all week, and you come in, and you're ready, and so you sing at the same volume, and you make your hands the same way, and you put your head the right way, and all, the, all these different things, and, and there's still something missing. There's still something lacking. You're, you just don't feel like you're singing as passionately as the other person. Well, you're not singing as passionately as the other person. But the reason why they're singing more passionately, passionately than you is not because they've been practicing all week their voice and their hand gestures. It's because it comes from a heart of faith. Their passionate singing is the fruit of a heart of faith, a heart that is passionate about God. True worship, acceptable worship, begins from a heart of faith. That's what we can learn from Abel's example here in Genesis chapter 4. True worship begins from a heart of faith. Let's take another example. Uh, consider another example from, our, from, from one of the acts of worship that we do here in our gathered worship. Uh, think, think about offering money. So, one of the things that we do uh, that, that is supposed to, to shape our minds, that, 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 that teaches us, is every single time that we are in here gathering, you might have noticed on the screen, I think it was there, um, there's a, a verse that we put up regularly during the offering that says that each one must decide in his heart what he ought to give. Because God is interested, first and foremost, in the heart. 
When we think about giving, uh, you know, we can, we can throw all this energy into, into a certain percentage and thinking about, uh, you know, doing the math and figuring out to the penny, okay, here's exactly 10% or whatever. But what makes that offering acceptable is not getting the right figure. It's not about a percentage. It's about a heart attitude. And that's why Jesus can look at the woman who gives, you know, two pennies. And it's not about the money. It's not about the percentage. It's not about the amount. It's about the fact that she was offering from a heart of faith. Now, of course, when we think about worship, we shouldn't only think about this gathering and the acts that we, the acts of worship that we offer here in this gathering. Romans 12.1 teaches us, as Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. That's your spiritual service of worship, he says. We're supposed to present our bodies as, as living sacrifices. So our whole lives, everything that we do is a sacrifice of worship that we are to offer to the Lord. And so if we want to honor God in all aspects of our life, how do we do that? Where does that start? It starts in the heart. It doesn't start primarily by by trying harder and working more on on the external excellence of things. So for instance, if you want your work to be an offering of worship to God, the first thing that you need to be focused on is your heart before God. Your heart of worship to the Lord. Your heart of faith, trusting God with your work, trusting God, not primarily first and foremost focus on uh, how you can do better and try harder on the outside. Because it is possible to have an external sacrifice, an external offering, something that's physically an offering, but it not be honoring to the Lord because the heart's not in it. I mean, that was Cain's problem, right? He had an offering, but his heart was not in the right place. These two things, the heart and the external, are connected. They can't be separated. True worship begins from a heart of faith. Now, it's also important to note that true worship doesn't end with the heart. It begins with the heart, but it doesn't end with the heart. You know, we don't want to commit the error of Cain, where he's only focused on the external and his heart's not in it. But we don't want to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side and go to the other extreme and only focus on the heart as if the physical doesn't matter. God didn't make us just hearts. He made us an inner man and an outer man. We read from Deuteronomy chapter 6 earlier, love the Lord with all heart, soul, mind, strength, everything, the outside and the inside. So true worship begins from the heart of faith, but it doesn't end with the heart. True worship will start with the heart, and it will overflow into an external act of worship. Abel wouldn't have offered an, accepted, an, an acceptable sacrifice to God by having a good heart and just staying at home. No, his heart led to an offering of worship of the first fruits and of the choicest part of the animal. Uh, if we think back to the example of money, uh, it's true that just offering money externally is not... Uh, in and of itself, true worship. It, it must start with the heart. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the external doesn't matter. For instance, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he says you can look at that external, the physical, the money itself, how you spend your money, and you can trace it back to where your heart is. So these two things are the outside and the inside. 
Or even think about something like uh, our gathering of, of worship together. Uh, if we have a heart that wants to honor God, that trusts God, that wants to worship God, it will manifest itself in the external physical action of coming, of physically gathering together. Uh, we, can't, uh, we can't separate the heart and the physical action uh, because though worship begins in the heart, it doesn't end with the heart. So, for instance, it's not possible for us to go to church in our hearts without gathering with people. It's not possible to go to church on a deer hunt. It's not possible to go to church football field. Those are good things. You can worship there, but that's not the same as honoring God's commandment to gather together and to worship together. And so the heart is important, and it starts there, but it goes a heart of faith, trust that when God says to do something, he knows best. Heart of faith always bears the fruit of obedience. So we see in Abel an offering from a heart of faith. It starts, with the, it starts with a heart. He's accepted because of his heart of faith. And that heart of faith then results in his offering. The second scene, though, we see here is a murder from a heart of anger. So Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's offering is rejected. And we should note here that Abel's offering was not accepted because it was better than Cain's. God wasn't comparing the two. He wasn't saying, I have room for one offering, and I'm going to take the best of these two and accept that. No. Either one of them could have been accepted. Both of them could have been accepted. Each was accepted or rejected based on its own merits, its own uh, qualities. But Cain didn't understand that. Cain was angry at his brother, even though the fact that Abel's offering was accepted had nothing to do with the fact that Cain's offering was rejected. Cain is angry, boiling inside. He's sulking. It's showing on his face, the text tells us. So God comes to him, and he gives him reassurance. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He says to Cain, listen, the, the door's not closed. The opportunity's not over. Why are you angry? You can still be accepted. Just because Cain was, or just because Abel was accepted doesn't mean you can't be. But God also sees Cain, and he gives him a warning. He says in the rest of verse 7 there, if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is the same language used back in chapter 3 and verse 16, whenever God was talking to Eve about how her desire would be for her husband, and yet he would rule over her. It's the idea that she would have this desire to dominate her husband, yet he would dominate her. And what God is saying here to Cain is sin wants you dead. It wants to dominate you. It wants to take control over you. And you must rein it in. You must take control over this. 
But Cain doesn't listen. Verse 8, he speaks to his brother Abel, goes out in the field, raises up, kills him. One of the most striking things about this passage is how quickly it moves from God warning Cain about how sin wants to destroy him and Cain immediately giving in to sin. No hesitation, no remorse, no repentance. He just goes and he does what he wants to do. As we look at this emotion that Cain is experiencing, this anger that makes his face fall, it's boiling inside that consumes him. It's an anger that, that, that leads to a depression in him. He's, he's sulking. He's boiling. It, it, everything about him is consumed by this desire, this anger. Do you know that emotion toward another person? Where you're just consumed with anger toward another person. Bitterness resentment you can't shake the thought of them how much they upset you how much you despise them replaying over and over what happened and people may even look at your face and say what what's going on not knowing what's internally happening it's not that you're sad it's that you're angry and your anger has consumed you and, it, and it's, it's controlled your, even your facial expression, even your mood. You're, you have this, you're carrying around with you this depression because you have this resentment toward another person. If you know that sense, that resentment, that consuming anger toward another person, God has a warning for you. God is warning you. Sin is crouching at your door. You know, Cain likely thought that going out and killing his brother, doing something about the emotion that he was feeling, would bring relief. Here he had this, this anger, it was pent up, he, he wanted it to be resolved, he wanted it to be relieved, and he likely thought that if he would just kill his brother, everything would go away, everything would be relieved. He likely thought he was taking control of the situation and, re and bringing relief to himself. But it was a lie. His anger was lying to him, giving him empty promises about what acting on his sinful passions would do for him. And maybe your sinful passions are lying to you too. That if you would just act on this, then it would, it would be over. If you would just say that thing or do that thing or if you would, if you would finally just chew that person out, then, then you would have a, re a release. You'd have this relief from this pent-up anger and resentment that you have. But see, sin likes to give the illusion of control. All right, Cain, here you got this anger. You just need to take charge. You need to do something about it, and then that'll be a resolution. But in reality... Cain is losing control every step of the way. Sin is controlling him, and he is giving himself to it. Sin likes to give us the illusion of control. I mean, that's what the serpent did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He made them think that they were taking charge, that they were in control of their own destiny, that they were 
taking the reins and making their own decisions when really they were just letting themselves be consumed by desire, consumed by emotion, consumed by these sinful passions that were in them, and they were losing control. As I said, uh, throughout Scripture, these, uh, these two sons of Eve are given as examples of how we are and aren't to be. Uh, one of those uh, passages is in 1 John chapter 3. Would you turn there with me? 1 John chapter 3. Read with me First uh, John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 15. The Apostle John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John writes with this example of Cain, of how not to love your brother. I mean, it's the epitome, right, of how to not behave in love. But notice he says there in verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. Wow. Here Eve is hoping for an offspring, the promised offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And physically, Cain was the offspring of the woman. But spiritually, he proved himself to be more the offspring of the serpent. And we see in Cain and Abel this tension, this promised conflict between good and evil. Between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And Cain tragically proves himself to be in line more with the serpent than with the offspring of the woman. So if we learn from Abel that true worship begins from a heart of faith, what we learn from Cain is that sin begins in the heart too. Cain sinned externally, no doubt. Murder is a physical act of sin. But it began before he ever killed his brother. It began when he had a heart of anger. When he let it control him, consume him. Let his face fall. He was so consumed with anger toward his brother. This is what Jesus teaches, right? In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. That the sin of murder 
starts in the heart. I mean, you know what the difference is between someone who hates his brother in the heart and then murders him and someone who hates his brother and doesn't murder him? Opportunity. The heart is exactly the same. And it's not just sin, or excuse me, it's not just anger. Lust wants to have this consuming uh, control of us. Covetousness wants to consume our hearts. And the sins that we commit all start, as James says, as desires in our heart. And it's when those desires are allowed to run rampant, when those desires are allowed to take control over us, that we bear the fruit of sin. We bear the fruit of murder or sexual immorality or theft or whatever sort of external sins may be there. Sins on the outside begin as sins of the heart. And just like with worship, uh, sin... Though it starts in the heart, doesn't stop in the heart. It's not as if, you know, maybe Cain killed his brother. We look at him, oh, well, maybe he had a good heart, though. No. And that's true in smaller things, too. Uh, sin on the outside is still sin on the outside. Uh, the heart doesn't change that. But what we need to realize is that sin on the outside starts as sin on the inside. So what do we do? How do we combat this? Well, we need to listen to what God says to Cain here in Genesis chapter 4, he says that his sin wants, it, it's crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And we need to heed that warning. Sin wants to kill us. It is crouching, waiting for someone to devour. Its desire is for you, God says, but you must rule over it. We must see these desires, just like Cain had this anger in his heart, this burning anger that wanted to consume him. We must see that and we must dominate it. We must kill sin or sin will be killing us, as the Puritan John Owen said. Romans eight thirteen, Paul instructs us, he tells us to put to death the deeds of the body. We need to be taking charge over our sin, killing it before it kills us. But instead of killing sin, of course, Cain let sin control him, and it led to him killing his brother. So we see an offering from a heart of faith. We see a murder from a heart of anger. And then in the rest of this passage, we see a response from the God of mercy. So Cain has just given in to his desire. He's given in to his anger. He's given in to his passion. And God comes to him. And, and notice, as God comes in verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He, he comes with patience, grace, very similar to how he came to Adam after he fell. Remember that? Where are you? God said whenever he came to Adam in the garden. But even as God approaches patiently, graciously, Cain has no remorse, no repentance. In fact, he lies. God asked him, where is your brother? He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, 
But of course, God sees through the lie. He knows where Abel is. He knows what he's done. And in verse 10, God says, what have you done? No doubt he is expressing sorrow himself as he sees what Cain has done to Abel. But he's also inviting Cain to survey what has gone on here. To consider what he's just done. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is no small thing that Cain has done. The stakes are incredibly high. He's taken a life. This is not something that can just be passed over. It's not just something that can be let go. This was an image bearer. This was a precious life that God gave. And he took it. Cain took this life. And so God describes the ground as having, uh, ha- having swallowed up uh, Abel's blood. And the, the ground, the blood of Abel is crying to him. It's crying out. It's crying out with a demand for justice. A demand that the victim be vindicated. This life that was taken be paid for. And his blood is also crying out, and as it cries out, it cries out with accusation toward Cain, the murderer. This blood is on Cain's hands. And so even as Abel's blood has been shed, it is crying with a demand for justice, a cry for justice, and crying out with an accusation toward the guilty. So God tells Cain what his punishment will be. Will be cursed from the ground. Here was this man who was the worker of the ground. That was his occupation. It's what he had devoted his whole career to. And here we are. Now because of what he has done for his brother. The ground is no longer going to open up its strength. Or yield its strength to Cain. Instead he's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. On the earth God says. And then Cain's response in verse 13 is just ridiculous. Look at it. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Greater than I can bear? You deserve to be dead. Do you realize what mercy God has shown you that he hasn't just struck you down a life for a life right then and there? He deserves death. And yet, here he is. God has given him this merciful punishment that's far less than he deserves. And he says, Oh, my punishment is greater than I can bear. No repentance. No remorse. He says in verse 14, he complains about this punishment. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, from the face, from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Well, yeah, they should. And even to this unrepentant sinner, who does deserve to die, who has already received more mercy than he deserves, God responds with even more mercy. Look at how kind God is and how generous God is and patient, I might add. As he says in verse 15, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord even puts this visible sign so that people see him and know not to mess with Cain. Then Cain is sent away from the presence of the Lord just like His parents were, 
God shows such mercy to Cain. Now, obviously, Cain doesn't repent. Cain doesn't uh, trust in God. There's not a saving event here. But we see, more importantly than what we see in Cain, in these last verses, is what we see about God. He is so merciful. He is so patient. And just think about how patient he has been with you. (laughs) I'm astounded when I think about just how patient God has been with me. This is a merciful, merciful God that we see in these verses. So let's come back to this idea that Cain and Abel offer us these examples. These examples of two hearts. In this passage, as we bring our heart before this text, you know, we want to worship like Abel. We want to have that kind of faith. We want to have that kind of offering and be accepted by God. And we don't want to sin like Cain. We don't want to be the murderer. We don't want to be the one who is consumed by his desire, who is judged by God. We want to have a heart like Abel. We don't want to have a heart like Cain. But as we see this merciful God at the end of these verses, what we need to realize is that we can only have that kind of a heart if we receive mercy from this God. The only way that I can have a heart like Abel is if I receive mercy from this God. The only way my heart can be protected from being a heart like Cain is if I receive mercy from this God. Because, yes, there there are these hearts that are set up as examples to us, one that we should follow, one that we should not follow, but left to our own, our heart cannot do it on its own. We can't just will our way into being like Abel, will our way into not being like Cain. Our hearts need cleansing if we are to be like Abel and not like Cain. They need cleansing from outside of ourselves. Uh, Last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 10. I just want to read this verse and remind us of what the author of Hebrews says about what we need for our hearts. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. If we are going to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith like Abel, then our hearts must be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience sprinkled with what what do our hearts need to be sprinkled with in order that they may be cleansed well turn with me to hebrews chapter 12 Read, if you would, with me, starting in verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I mentioned how Cain and Abel, they're these classic examples used throughout Scripture. Abel is the first classic example of innocent blood that was shed. And he may have been the first example of innocent blood being shed. But the ultimate example of innocent bloodshed is Jesus Christ. The one who was perfectly righteous from the inside out. The one who did not deserve to die, yet his blood was shed. In Abel's, word, Abel's blood cried out a word from the ground. As we said, it cried a demand for justice, a demand for vindication for the victim. It cried out an accusation toward Cain, an accusation to the guilt of what Cain has done. And the reality is, everything that we have ever done, every way that we have sinned in our heart like Cain, every way that we have sinned on the outside like Cain, every way that we have failed to worship from the heart like Abel, every way that we have failed to worship on the outside— All of that cries out for justice. It cries out to be paid for. It demands punishment. It demands payment. It cries out. But thanks be to God that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the word that Abel's blood speaks. Because Abel's blood cries, and as it cries out, it demands justice. But Jesus' blood cries out that justice has been delivered. Abel's blood cries out condemnation, but Jesus' blood cries out justification. Abel's blood cries out something must be done, but Jesus' blood cries out it is finished. And the reality is our offerings of worship are only accepted through Jesus' blood. They're not good enough on the outside. They're not good enough on the inside. 1 Peter 2.5 says that our offerings are only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We need his cleansing for the best offering that we would bring. In here, out there, in any way that we want to honor God with our heart, we must be cleansed with the blood of Jesus. And it is also through this blood of Jesus that our sins are paid for, that justice is brought Because Jesus bore the wrath of God, our sins can be paid in full. Justice can be satisfied by the blood of Jesus. And our hearts can be cleansed by this blood. We can have a new heart. A heart like ours is a heart like Cain. And we can have it renewed, cleansed, freed, transformed by the blood of Jesus. We can be changed from the inside out. If we trust in the one who lived a perfect life that we never could live. If we trust in the death that he died in our place. If we trust in the resurrection. His new life that can transform our lives. If we turn from sin. And if we place our faith in what Jesus has done. In his life. And what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection we can be saved, forgiven, and 
transformed. And today, as we conclude our worship service, we're going to conclude around the table of the Lord. We're going to conclude by taking of the cup and the bread, this meal that Jesus commanded us to take on the night that he was betrayed. And if you are a a believer here, if you are a a baptized believer of a gospel-preaching church, we invite you to this table. And as you come to the table, uh, we're going to pass these elements out in a moment. uh, we'll, We'll take them together. But as we eat from this table, and as we drink of this cup, I want us to remember that this is the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the blood that declares us not guilty. This is the blood that declares us righteous. This is the blood that declares us cleansed. This is the blood that declares us his. This is the blood that speaks a better word. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you haven't placed your faith in him alone to make you acceptable before God, we would ask that you let these elements pass by and instead that you would consider that Jesus is offering to you today to make you acceptable before God. Jesus is offering you the chance to be welcomed into the family of God, adopted, made new, made right with God, and not by anything that you do. Not because of a standard that you have to meet or works you have to do or anything like that, but only because of what Jesus has done in his life and what Jesus has done in his death in your place, taking the punishment you deserve. And so, while we would ask you to let these elements pass by, we would not uh, want you to let the opportunity pass you by to receive Jesus. So as we partake of this meal, uh, consider what Jesus has done and may all of our hearts be filled with faith in this Savior and what he has done. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the table now, um, or we have just seen in the pages of your word the heart that we wish we had and the heart that we actually do have. And Lord, more importantly, we've seen the mercy that we need. And so Lord, as we come to the table, we recognize that this need that we have is a need that you have met in the death of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we eat, we eat of bread that is a symbol of Jesus' body broken. The innocent in place of the guilty. Lord, as we drink this cup, it's a symbol of the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Lord, I pray that we would taste the sweetness of your word that you proclaim through the blood of Jesus as we partake of this meal together. We love you and praise you and ask that you'd be honored in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray.